newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. The media project is underway with a half hour of commentary and analysis, some days even some insight into the media issues of the week, we like to say. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, your host here with Dr. Alan Shartok, a political scientist and the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Alan, what do you want to talk about today? Well, you know, what I'm particularly interested in, Rex, is what's been happening to the media as it gets into the whole election cycle. So, for example, I was thinking quite a while now that CNN, when it started out, was being very careful. They never wanted to call the president a liar. They never wanted to call him up short. Now it's just open warfare, it seems to me. So I'd love to talk about how partisan or split the media has become. We will get into that. That's a good thing. Rosemary Armeo is here, investigative journalist, editor, professor. Rosemary, what are you up for today? Hi. Two issues are getting my attention this week. One is about how Kamala Harris hasn't been even in the race for a week, and there are already sexist tropes and really awful coverage of her. The same sort of thing that Sarah Palin and Geraldine Ferraro faced, and women this time are sick of it, and I think there will be a movement to try and keep the media honest. And the second thing is Belarus, where a longtime dictator stole an election. He rigged the election. And now journalists covering that and protests over that are disappearing. It seems to me it might be some lessons in Belarus for the United States. All right. We will get to those, too, I hope. And Barbara Lombardo is here, longtime editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of the Troy Record, now teaching journalism at UAlbany. What's in your mind today, Barbara? On my mind, all of the above that my esteemed colleagues have mentioned, and I would just add to that the idea of covering the elections. How do we in the media avoid legitimizing things that are not true? How do we keep focused on the issues and the topics and not just the, oh, my God, he said this, she said that? Great thought. How much Absolutely. time do we have? <laughs> gonna, Let's take an hour right. today. I'm sure we'll just devote the rest of the programming of the day to the media project. So Rosemary raises the question of Kamala Harris, how will the media cover? You said sexist tropes. What kinds of things do you have in mind there? Well, the L.A. Times came out with a headline that was immediately sexist, and they were called out for it. Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson are not calling her by her correct name. Her, her name is, has an unusual pronunciation. But my goodness, she's running for the second highest office in the land. How much effort does it take for a broadcaster to get her name right? There are talks about her appearances. She's pretty. She's attractive, including even on the roundtable yesterday. I got into it with Chris Churchill this week about whether or not she as a smart and strong woman would take over. You know, belittled Joe Biden like a strong woman can't do that. 
I know there are issues also with the vice president not overshadowing the president, but many women, journalists and other politicians, are not having it this time. They're calling out these examples. I know about the L.A. Times, not because I read the story, but because there were lots of social media rants and raves about what the heck were they doing, do better than this. And you know about, you mentioned the mispronunciation by Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson, that noted right-wing commentator on Fox News, right? (laughs) I got that, Rex. Yeah, thanks. Alan, what do you think? I mean, we have seen a lot of this kind of stuff in political reporting on women in the past, haven't we? We have. And the fact of the matter is that what we see in our future vice president, I hope, is a combination. It's the whole package. She's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But if I say she's brilliant, somebody's going to say you're condescending to even have to mention that she's brilliant. If I say, for example, what a terrific speech it was, I thought it was one of the best I've ever seen, somebody's going to say you're condescending. So there will be a feminist slant on this that I think could cause some problems in the way we go forward. I think she's terrific, and I think the more people say she's terrific, the better off we are. But what can I say? Rosemary, over to you. It is difficult. Even the questions asked of women candidates is different than that of men. How will you balance, you know, your time in office with your family? That's not a question that we ask of men, even though they face the very same difficulties. And yes, there is going to be some feeling of the way. And I think that's great because I think this is a historic candidacy that will educate us on how you do it better. And she is sharp enough and pointed enough that she herself will point out those questions. She'll just kick them in the butt when they ask stupid questions and condescend to her. I think that there's a great opportunity here to move the candidacy of women to a different level. They need to be treated the same as men. And maybe that means we ask men questions, too, about balancing your life and looking your best when you're doing appearances. All those things that have traditionally been women's questions, maybe we should be asking everybody that. Perhaps no, I think there's say. something to that, Rosemary. I think especially as we get more women in positions of authority in news organizations, we need to actually, I think, broaden what we say to male candidates so that we are bringing in a little bit more of the thorough reporting. But, you know, Barbara, think about this. Here's something that Margaret Sullivan, the great Washington Post media columnist, former editor of the Buffalo News, wrote. She said, it's going to be a perilous tightrope walk to cover this inevitable ugliness without making it much worse. How do you examine without amplifying? It's tough because when you report some of these stereotypical things that people do, you inevitably put more wind in the sail, right? Yeah, I I would agree. And I, I would go on to say Margaret Sullivan points out on her same comments and column to do your best to stick to the topics that matter. Don't get sucked into endless he said and she said, as I said earlier, about the attacks and who called who what, but stick to the topics. And going back to what Rosemary said, topics should not just be women's topics or men's topics. Reproductive rights, rights for uh, parents and child care issues, health issues are just one example of things that are not for one gender or another. It's for everybody, and they, they all should be held accountable to that. Behaviors, too, in politicking also have taken on a gender-specific kind of role. Like, if you cry, that ruined Edward Muskie. Remember that? Why not? Men cry, and he was emotionally moved at the time, and it was in cold weather, too. So he cried, and he's out. Why? If a woman gets a stupid question, she cannot, as I would, you know, snap back and say, what the hell is that about? You can't be angry in public. If someone in a debate is stalking you, walking behind you and lurking over you, you 
can't turn around and, you know, kick them. You, you have to do this all ladylike. It's an impossible, difficult you, situation for women know, politicians to be in, and we have to point it out. The part of the speech that I was most taken with was when uh, Harris was talking about the Bo Biden relationship. And I was sitting there saying, I wonder who's going to cry. I wonder if it's Joe. I was feeling tears in my eyes. I wonder if it's Joe. I wonder if it's, she's going to be a crier. Neither of them shed a tear, although it was a very emotional moment. The other thing, Rosemary, I just wanted to say while I have a second here, is that what I see Senator Harris doing beautifully is bringing up many of the issues that you don't want reporters to ask her. So she spent a lot of time yesterday talking about how her family came first. Why was she doing it? I don't know. It may well have been because she understands that yep. there are many women in this country who are going to vote on that basis, and she needed to do that. Well, it made her seem very human, too. So I think she did a great job bringing in all different aspects of her life and her outlook so that there were things about it that could appeal to everyone. Is there anything that journalists can do when you have a situation where the president uses these certain terms for women? He will say nasty, nastiest. Nasty is the term that he often uses for women. You know, they're either nasty or they're suburban housewives. Suburban housewife seems to be, I think, Trump code for white people and the threat. When you point to such things as a journalist, I think it's important for us to call out what it really represents, but that's difficult. When he says that Joe Biden was going to probably put Cory Booker in charge of suburban affairs, that is a clearly racist trope. And we need to call that out without uh, without alienating that 40% of the population that is hard Trump. That's difficult, right? I'm not so, so much worried about alienating them as I am about correctly explaining to readers and viewers what is meant by what the president says, but that it is difficult. It would require an extra sentence or two or an extra line or two by the broadcaster to put that into context, but it is important to try to do that. I think yeah. one advantage that this vice presidential candidate has over previous ones is that there are many more women in the press corps, and they are aggressive and talented, and they have no problem at all saying to the president, what do you mean by that, Mr. President? Do you mean, do you mean black? Why are you mispronouncing her name that way? They are asking those hard questions, which I think is better than just adding a little line after the president has said something. It's make him say, what do you mean by that? Best way to get him. That is, that's true, although it is hard to get an answer from him. Or his attention. Yeah, he's out. I agree with you. Yeah. Yes, true. Or attack the reporter the way he consistently, for example, attacks uh, Yumi Shalcindor of PBS. Yeah, there's a bunch of them that he goes after. Right. It was really quite something to see Senator Harris and then hear right after her, the president of the United States attacking her and everybody else. One person gave what I think is the best speech I may have ever heard. The other did his usual mumble-jumble, I can't keep my mind on what I'm saying stuff. That contrast has to occur to people, doesn't it? Wait, are you talking about Pamela and Biden or her and Trump? No, Trump. Because that's the confusion that the Republicans are trying to make, that Trump. Biden is somehow muddled and confused. Nope. Yeah. In fact, I think, without getting off topic here, Biden gave what was a 10 out of 10 speech himself yesterday. So he did extraordinarily well, except everybody's talking about her speech. 
Okay, so that's our first analysis of the ticket. Let's move on to another topic that we promised to pick up. Actually, let's just take a little overseas trip here. Belarus, what was that, Rosemary, that you wanted to talk about with the context of Belarus? Well, Lukashenko, who has been a Soviet-style dictator for decades now, ran again, ran against a woman. Interestingly, there's so many perils I see with the United States. And he won by outlandishly large margins. They're so outlandish that, of course, there's widespread. First, it was allegations. Now, there's actual evidence of vote rigging, of cheating. And the press has been covering this. Very difficult to be an investigative reporter in Belarus. I've worked with journalists. I have trained in Minsk. And they have come out with stories supporting what has turned into huge street protests against the stealing of this election. And now something like 20 journalists have disappeared. They've just been taken from their homes and offices. No one knows exactly where they are. They're not in contact with their family. And they're being punished. Some have been beaten. We don't know exactly what's happened to all of them, but they're all in danger and they're being punished for doing their jobs. And I just see such a worrisome parallel with the United States It's so easy for that to happen in a supposedly civilized country where feelings run high and there's so much at stake. You know, it's happening around the world as well, not perhaps with the brutality that we're seeing just now in Belarus, but look at what's happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's press freedom is hanging by a thread. The arrest of Jimmy Lai, who runs Apple Daily, the cops marching into that big newsroom, Apple Daily in Hong Kong. There was a time, of course, when the United States government would have stood up for that, would have said to the Chinese government, there will be hell to pay for this attack on free expression. But we as an American government don't have that credibility anymore because the attacks that the president of the United States mounts on pro-democracy media. And so I think we're just going to see more of this repression all around the world. In fact, Rex, that's a very good point because I've been watching the president, as difficult as it is for me, and he quite frequently will say something about your terrible network or your terrible people. In other words, you know, he is maybe one step behind the Belarus guy, but the fact is that he is identifying his enemies in the press corps publicly. He has. He believes that the press is bad and the enemy of not the people, but of government as he wants to do it. And so he is on the side of Lushenko and the mainland Chinese who are punishing outspoken, independent, free coverage by reporters. They are in danger. The public doesn't seem to be on the side of reporters either. Go ahead, Barbara. Well, the president has helped with his enemy of the people and singling people out to give credibility to what has been for you know decades. People have you know, looked askance at the media, but now they do it with pride. I wanted to recommend, I heard an interview on WAMC recently with Maria Ressa on her new documentary, A Thousand Cuts, about her online paper, Rappler, and how they are standing up to government pressure in the Philippines. One more example of how just yes. yeah, media quash. She's facing a lot of charges for cyber, breaking the cyber security law in Philippines, which seems designed to... Right, baloney, all baloney. Yep. So, you know, this repression of the media in the United States is coming, as we've often pointed out, against the backdrop of very tough financial realities as a result of the digital revolution, record consolidation, mergers of journalism outlets. And this is going on, and what it is doing is it's leaving a lot of communities absolutely without coverage. Communities that for a century have had their own local newspapers suddenly are gone, and you have newspapers trying to cover uh, communities 100 miles apart. And, you know, there are 
efforts to try to help that. Alan, you noted one that was spotlighted in your community recently, some legislation on the federal level that might support local media, right? That's right, Rex. Of course, the president of the United States is not going to sign any bill that helps the press stay alive. That's my view. But it may well pass if Biden becomes the president and the Senate becomes Democratic. Nevertheless, there is still the question of, as to whether or not the federal government should be injecting funds into newspapers in the same way that questions have been raised before you even open your mouth, Rex. <laughs> about the federal government giving money to uh, public radio stations. Uh, in other words, at what point uh, does the, the government who gives money say, okay, because you've been misbehaving, we're yanking our, our, our subsidies or our tax breaks that we're giving to you from you? It's a dangerous and slippery slope, I think. So that's a question, yes. What uh, Alan's referring to is a piece of legislation that has been introduced, not by senior legislators, and as you point out, it's not really going to happen anytime soon with this president, but legislation that would provide tax breaks for local media. There was an editorial in Allen's local newspaper, the Berkshire Eagle in Massachusetts, that supports this. And so you're saying, Alan, that it's a bad idea to do this because in the same way that public broadcasting is always at risk of having their funding yanked. We shouldn't get into it because of that, because this might put the media in the crosshairs of government, right? Well, in, in a rare uh, example, Rex, of your putting words in my mouth, I didn't express uh, support of it. I just say there is going to be a lot of debate on this matter. For example, as I've opined before, our news media is largely privately owned. You've made that point yourself about the Hearst. When I said, well, tell me how much you make. And you say, well, no, this is a private company. Well, the real question is, are we going to then hold newspapers responsible in some way if we say, all right, the government is going to funnel money into your news operation. Now, what do you owe back in terms of transparency and other things? It's a very interesting question to me. We do know, as you pointed out quite correctly, newspapers are closing up all over the place. I think it's Wyoming that's not going to have a newspaper. Right. right. So if we're to save the old-style newspaper, something's got to be done. Right. I just want to make a point that this legislation that you're talking about is not giving grants from the government, although it's a fine line. It's a tax credit for local news media organizations specifically to compensate journalists, tax credit to small businesses to encourage advertising in local media, a tax credit for taxpayers to spend on subscriptions to local news organizations. So it's not specifically about ink on crushed trees. It's not grants, but this is a piece of legislation uh, introduced by a Republican Congress from Washington State, Dan Newhouse, and a Democratic congresswoman from Arizona, Ann Kirkpatrick. Just an interesting piece of legislation. But well, as you not, point out, not going anywhere in the Trump era. <laughs> well, not to get too far into this, if you're going to do it, then you better be sure that there's going to be a public responsibility coming back from the newspapers to the public. And as I pointed out just a few seconds ago, we should know how much profit people are making when we, when we make these, these assertions that they need the help. Okay, we need to know. True. 
That is certainly the case with public broadcasting. I mean, you have to publish all of the data about how much you're paid and how much money comes in from where and what the sources of the revenue are. That is available to anyone who wants to pull the IRS forms about all the public media outlets because of the tax breaks that public broadcasting gets, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Did I fool you when I said that's exactly right? Never know what to do about that. If you're just joining us, this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Rex Smith of the Times Union here with Dr. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, and Barbara Lombardo, and we thank you for joining us. You can always, by the way, share your thoughts with us, media at wamc.org. Media at wamc.org is how you interact with us, and we're always happy to hear your point of view. One more thing, if I may, on that. Yes, sir. This public radio idea. There are, I'll get into trouble for this, but there are certainly public radio stations that keep shut, as my old math teacher, Mrs. Wick, used to say. They keep shut because they're afraid. They're afraid of the government. The radio station that this emanates from has, I think, been fairly courageous in that. And there have been times people have said to us in the media themselves, don't do that. You're, you're putting yourselves at risk for doing it, and you're putting all of us at risk for doing that. So it is something that is very real, and I think we have to worry about what happens when government gets involved in funding one way or the other through tax breaks or anything else, media. Barbara, you were going to say something before? I was going to suggest that people read an article by the Pointer Institute about the newspapers that are closing, but also they list from around the country. There's several from the Midwest news organizations. They may not all be print publications, but ones that almost closed and were surviving. And I'm going to look up more to learn more about the little groups that have been either buying these or helping these. One in Indiana, their provider that hosts their website, it's an online publication. Their online provider redesigned their website at a substantially lower cost package and made it more feasible for them to even to be able to continue. There was a hopeful note at the end of this otherwise depressing article where they actually list newspaper by newspaper or news organization by news organization and how they're doing. Unlike the Daily News, which suddenly has no home. To call its own. You know, this is a remarkable development that I think is worth bringing up. Some major newsrooms have just announced that they are closing altogether. That is, Tribune Publishing Company, which owns a number of papers around the country, they're closing the newsrooms of the New York Daily News, the Orlando Sentinel. You need to to state that differently, Rex. You need to say they are continuing to publish but are closing their physical newsrooms. Exactly. It's not that the New York Daily News is going out of business or the Orlando Sentinel, but thinking of real estate in light of health and economic conditions related to the coronavirus, even the Capital Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, which had the five staff members killed by a gunman in 2018. This is remarkable. Rosemary, think about this from your experience in newsrooms. What is the impact of having people working together in a place versus working remote? I would think that the loss of newsrooms could be a significant loss of journalistic capacity. It, it is a loss to those of us, like all of us here, who are dinosaurs and love newsrooms. It's a bohemian, exciting, um, just a great atmosphere. You bounce off ideas, and it's fabulous. But the truth is you don't need it. I've worked overseas for years now without a physical newsroom or a very limited physical newsroom where we'd have a few meetings. But reporters are sprung all over the – they're spread out all over the – the continent, actually, and they communicate with each other via electronics. And I think that's the wave of the future, and I don't think you lose anything with that. I'd rather the money that goes into physical plant upkeep go into reporter salaries.
calories and hire more of them. Ooh, I think yeah, that oversimplifies it a little bit. Besides yeah. the camaraderie, you learn at a small paper like the Saratogian, especially, and at the New York Times, you are learning and bouncing things off of other people. You're having other people read what you're doing, which can be done remotely, but is it going to be done remotely? And beyond that, where are these journalists supposed to be working out of? Are they suddenly supposed to be only like, paying to work out of their own home? If they're out covering something, where are they supposed to land to be able to file stories? One thing is for sure, and that is the coronavirus, and I think Rosemary's point is extremely well taken, has gotten us to the point where an awful lot of people are working from their homes and their home computers, and I don't think we're going to turn around and go back the other way. No, I don't think so either. And we're learning. We're trying to teach people. Barbara, you and I are trying to teach students uh, without a physical meeting place anymore. Whether Mm -hmm. it's the best way has not been determined yet, but it certainly is the wave of the future, and journalists can continue to function this way, long distance, remotely. One of the factors of COVID-19 that's really causing a problem, though, is that because of the sickness, a lot of reporters aren't actually going out on stories. They're having to do it by telephone. Even if the change to working remotely, working from home, working from your car continues, there will come a time, I hope, when reporters will not be doing so much work by telephone. I do think that that damages the journalism that we're trying to do. And we'll look forward to COVID-19 being past us so that we can get back onto that horse. We're out of time. Uh, The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis, and we hope that you've gotten some insights and and we'll come back to some of these topics we didn't get to. Alan Shartuck has been here. Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo. Thanks to our producer, David Gosina, and we thank you, our listeners. I'm Rex Smith from the Times Union. Join us again next week for The Media Project. She employed skullduggery. She up and cut her husband's only throat. She chopped him into fragments. She stuffed him in a trunk. She shipped it all back yonder to her uncle in Podunk. Now newspapermen meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's uncle. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling, ting-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to her podcast Podcast the Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 